0: Welcome to Season 3 Episode 17 of Beyond Zero, I'm your host Ben, joining me today is Kate Evans. Kate is an arts journalist with ABC Radio National, and she joins me from her home in Sydney. Welcome to the show, Kate. Hello. Thank you so much for inviting me. How's life in beautiful inner city, Marrickville, under the flight path?
1: Well, it's both noisy because of the flight path and living on a narrow one-way street that, you know, occasionally people just pause right in front of the house. And right now it's a little bit hot and sweaty.
0: <laughs> yes. i <laughs> have heard it's quite humid. The, one of the best things about living in a place like Marrickville is there's such a nice culture at the moment and you've got great bookshops off the road in Newtown and things like that. What do you find great about living in Sydney?
1: Well, I'm a long-time sider who then spent about seven years in Brisbane before returning uh, to, to Sydney and I guess I've often lived in the inner west or the, the sort of inner east but now that I'm living here with children, it's a very sort of communal area. I back onto a, a park that used to be a brick pit that was then established in the 1930s and so even all through lockdown you could hear this sort of hubbub of people walking around the park using it so it feels like quite a dynamic place to be and at a push you can actually walk into Newtown
0: Mm.
1: it'd be a long walk but I could even walk to the ABC from here if I had to.
0: Wow I know that park quite well it's a beautiful park.
1: Yeah I'm back onto Hinson Park.
0: Yeah that's really nice beautiful okay Excellent. Yes, I did love my time in Sydney. Um, one of the things that I've, I don't know, keep coming back to is missing uh, Kino Kania in the city, uh, mm, which I think a that's probably, yeah, I think it's probably one of the best in in the country. Probably is the best in the country.
1: Well, and it has specialist booksellers, which is something. I mean, I think all all bookshops partly rely on that hand selling thing and the expertise. But I remember going in there trying to get a hold of some graphic novels for mm. my son, and that was an area that I really didn't know, and I came across this fantastic guy who really knew his stuff, knew what to recommend for different age groups, um, you know, read really widely, and it's that kind of specialist knowledge that, you know, that makes any bookshop experience a really good one, I think.
0: Mm. Yes. Yes, yeah, sadly I miss that place quite a lot. I used to be there almost on a weekly basis. <laughs> You have a PhD in history. You've been working at the ABC for over 20 years. Do you want to tell us a bit about your background uh, in academics and also how you came to work for the ABC? Sure.
1: Well, I did an arts degree at Sydney Uni expecting that I would probably specialise in literature because that was my great love and that's what I thought that I would do. And then instead I got totally drawn into um, history. So I actually started doing ancient history, classical history, uh, not necessarily thinking far ahead in terms of career path, but then I did an honours degree in history. And at the end of that, when I wasn't entirely sure what I was going to do next, two really important things happened. Uh, One was that I started as a volunteer at community radio station 2SER working on a history program. And that also gave me more of an entree into the interesting things that were happening in uh, the contemporary history world and into more Australian history, but also just the world of, you know, feminist history, cultural history and so on. And at one point I was talking to and interviewing some academics who ran a public history program at the University of Technology in Sydney, and there was a new master's program that sounded so interesting And as I was interviewing them, I said, wow, this sounds really extraordinary. This sounds exactly like the sort of thing I'd love to do. And they just turned to me and said, well, why don't you do it? And so I then did a master's in public history. And so public history means uh, everything from history in the media to museums, filmmakers, and a really great cohort of people I was working with. And at the end of that, I was doing all sorts of um, part-time work And I ended up getting work with some of those academics uh, as a research assistant. And I love archival research. I love diving into the sort of materiality of history. But I was still also making radio um, at 2SER. And a combination of those two things meant that I did some freelance stories for the ABC. So as a consequence of that, I did... A few stories for the social history unit at Radio National, and while still working every week on a, um, you know, as a volunteer on a history program, and that sort of gave me an entree into the um, ABC. So I did little bits and pieces of work, and I basically did whatever came my way. So the the other thing that really got my foot in the door I, was I was asked if I would do four weeks of filing, for the religion unit at um abc radio national i'm not a religious person at all Um, and i was literally filing all sorts of journals and articles but as a consequence of that they then realized i had some radio skills and so i then started working i think it was 12 hours a week on uh, what was then the religion report with um john cleary Mm -hmm. and so i did that and I just kept on getting short term contracts. And I just said yes to absolutely anything that I was asked to do while keeping my academic uh, interest going as well. At some point in there, I did work for a, a year or two in publishing as a book editor. And then I also did some, um, you know, some work for university, as I said, and somewhere in there, I also decided to start a Ph.D., And I was doing that while getting whatever part-time and freelance work I could at the ABC. And I then spent a while uh, making history features and, again, doing it part-time. So I was doing lots of things at the same time until eventually I was ready to finish that PhD. It was a cultural history of press photography in Australia, so intellectually really interesting. I was mired in the archives. I was making history programs part-time at the ABC and I my contract was sort of coming to the end on whatever program I was working on and one day the person who was the head of Radio National came around and said look there's a new TV series that is starting that's going to be a big picture political history of Australia and it was federation funding. So it was about you know it was to go to air in 2001. Uh, why don't you apply for it? And I said look In six months' time, I should submit this PhD. So I really can't work full-time. By the time this woman had got back to her desk, I thought, hang on, a full-time job in history in the Australian media, uh, that's a unicorn kind Mm. of job. Like they do not exist. So I ran around to her office and knocked on the door and said, how do I apply for that? Um, And so I applied for that job and got it. And then spent the next couple of years working on um, this tv history program which was extraordinary because i spent the full first year doing original archival research all around the country in the national archives in the um, national library in canberra everywhere so by that point i was really feeling like a history specialist at the abc And near the end of that project, I was asked if I would make, so it was a five-part TV series, if I would also make a five-part radio series that would go along with it. And so that was using a lot of the audio archives that the ABC holds. And so for then and the next couple of years, I was doing that kind of work and then that ran out and there was a job coming up on Life Matters, the social policy daily program. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm a history person. I don't know how to do this, but I applied for it. And so this is where I'm partly thinking to myself, I'm not a journalist. I don't know about daily deadlines. I don't know how to do this. Um, And then I did. I spent the next couple of years doing that and learnt an awful lot. And that's why it was interesting to me. When you introduced me as an arts journalist, it took me years to um, feel comfortable with the term journalist partly because my academic work had been in the history of journalism um, and so I was very aware of what I wasn't which mm. was that I I didn't have any news experience I didn't have a sort of conventional journalist training I did a general arts degree so it's taken me a long time to feel like I can call myself a journalist and somewhere in there I, I mean, I was always a reader of fiction. Um, It was something that kept me sane all through a PhD, all through, it's something that I did every single day. And so I just started to pitch stories in between my other work to the books program on Radio National, just to say, look, I've read this book. I think the writer is really interesting. I'm happy to interview them and give you that interview if it's useful for you. And so I just did that sort of on top of my other work. And I did that over a year or two until a job then came up later on Books and Arts Daily. Um, There's a lot of other things in there. And I did some sort of management type roles and led the team at uh, Life Matters and just took every bit of experience I could. So that's a very shorthand version of how I ended up uh, working in books at RN.
0: Yeah, you were telling me before we started recording just about the fact that a lot of the people who work at ABC come on board uh, casually and pitch a few things and then eventually just end up staying. But obviously that's worked well for you.
1: Yes, it has. But it has meant that I spent years on short-term contracts um, doing freelance stuff, which I actually find freelance stuff very stressful because you never quite know when you're being paid. Mm. And it also means spending years saying yes to everything which means that at times you've got too much work and you're juggling things like crazy. But the short-term contracts I did, um, I didn't even realise when they flipped over to um, actually having an ongoing position at one point until I queried it with some um, admin. And they went, oh, no, you're ongoing. And I was like, yeah. well, nobody told me, but mm-hmm. that's good to know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> one of the inspirations for this podcast was your former colleague, Ramona Koval. And she worked on the long-running daily book show and books and arts. Do you want to tell us about um, the programs that you've worked on since coming across to to the book world in radio?
1: Ramona, uh, Ramona obviously is a very important force for books and books broadcasting in Australia. We never worked particularly closely together. So when she was presenting the book show, I was actually working on other programs, including Revision, the history program, the comfort zone. Um, I did some stuff on movie time. So I was pitching things to her program, which she was quite receptive to, but we didn't actually work that closely together but of course I always listened to the way in which she interviewed and that's part of the skills of a broadcaster is to listen to other people and to think about what they're doing she used to regularly go to the Cheltenham literary Festival and I loved listening to her long form uh, interviews they were so skilled so beautifully structured but also they showed a real, Depth of knowledge, which is something that I took inspiration from, that if you're speaking to somebody about their latest book, if you know the rest of their work, it's always going to make for a better interview. And so when I then came over from being somebody who occasionally pitched something to the books programs to actually working on the main books programs, I worked much more closely with Michael Cathcart. And so I was mostly, I was a producer, which means you're finding stories, pitching stories, writing briefs, doing a lot of pre-interviews. So a lot of reading, a lot of preparing. Pre-interviews are fascinating things because they're much more free form. So you often do a long interview with a guest and then you structure it afterwards. You think, oh, now that was interesting. We don't need to know about that. How would I then present this for a presenter to make it their own? Um, And so I did a lot of that with Michael Cathcart. And he's also somebody who I watched and listened to a lot and learned things from. I mean, you learn things from your colleagues at a place like the ABC all the time. It's one of the great things about working there is that you're surrounded by really clever, really interesting people. And we give each other feedback in an ideal world that is always done with great collegiality and without any defensiveness and i learnt a lot about that by working on a daily program uh, because dailies are quite brutal and so you can't be precious about feedback if somebody says that missed the mark or why did you start there or that wasn't good enough or how could you make that better you take it on board and you don't have time to be precious about it and so working on life matters and then working on Books and Arts Daily, which then became Books and Arts, meant that I learned a lot about how you might make an interview or a program or the shape of a whole long discussion better.
0: Mm. Yes, Michael Cathcart, when he was hosting at Daily, uh, did such a fantastic job with books. And now I think he's doing the theatre program, but such a great broadcaster.
1: Well, and one of the interesting things I found from listening, because as a producer, you do a lot of editing as well. And so when you're editing, you think about how people are asking questions as well as how you might do it if you get an opportunity. There was a writer who I was probably a bit sniffy about. I wasn't interested in the work of Elizabeth Gilbert because I had no interest in um, her you know, personal memoir stuff like Eat, Pray, Love. And then I heard a long form interview that Michael did on stage, I think at Adelaide Writers Week one year, talking about her book, The Signature of All Things. And it was such a brilliant discussion um, about, you know, all the things I'm interested in, about history and fiction, about the relationship of the past to the present, about good writing. I thought, okay, I'm intrigued. I'm going to read this. And and I read that, and I thought it was one of the best pieces of historical fiction I'd read. Mm. And it reminded me of how important it is to be open-minded, not just as a listener but as a reader. So that was quite a good lesson for me.
0: I actually remember that interview quite well because I like you uh, could not stand Eat, Pray, Love, and it's the kind of book that I would probably put in the pile. Run to... screaming! Yeah, exactly. And and that other book, The Signature of All Things, was just it was brilliant. And like history of science and stuff like that within that book, it was just. Great. And it was amazing for me that a broadcaster could change my mind so quickly on something like that.
1: Yes, I learned a lot from that experience of thinking of myself as both a listener and then thinking about how I would do an interview. But at some point during that time working on Books and Arts Daily, the um, Amanda Armstrong, who was then the head of Radio National, came to me and asked if I would be interested in spending I can't remember whether they gave me a half a day a week or one day a week to bring together the books content from Books and Arts Daily and edit it for a special Saturday night show Mm. they were going to call Books Plus. And so that was supposed to take no extra time from my job as a producer on Books and Arts and because Books and Arts did cover not just literature but, um, you know, screen culture, visual arts and all that kind of stuff. So books was just one thread. And I guess from a management point of view, it was a bit of a recognition of how much people don't want to just read. They want to hear from writers. They want to talk about books. And so that was supposed to be just a little compile job of mine where I would just go through, I'd get those, interviews, I'd edit them a bit to fit them in, I'd do a new script. Um and perhaps I would, you know, stick in one of my interviews from the show as well, because at that point I was maybe doing like one interview a week. Well basically I took that idea and run the hell with it. Mm. I I did a lot of work, including a lot of unpaid work, on that program to basically make it a program in its own right. So it still had a relationship to the daily program. But I put um, extra interviews of mine. I put longer versions. I cut down other things. I did a lot of playing around with that show until, and I did that for years until eventually they said, do you want to have your own book show?
0: Mm. Uh,
1: but I did both of those things for a long time. Um, and in that time we did things like we ran book club programs on and there was a subcontinent book club where we did all Indian, Pakistan, Sri Lankan writing. We did an African book club series. We did a whole lot of series. And so in that process, I guess I was making myself more and more of a book specialist. Mm. And then it was, I think it was the very end of 2017, they said, would you be interested in uh, putting together a, a pitch uh, for, a books program and how would it be different to, you know, our existing program, a, a, the book show, which is a, um, you know, like an interview writer-based program. What else could we do in this space? And so that's when I put together a brief for the bookshelf, which is more of a review-based program, mm. uh, which I present with Cassie McCullough.
0: Excellent. All right. Let's talk about some of your highlights covering books and arts. Who have been some of your favourite guests?
1: Um, Look, as well as doing the, um, you know, the the regular on-air programs, I also do quite a lot of events at writers' festivals Mm. and record those for later broadcast as well. And I was actually thinking about this the other day. One of my absolute career highlights was spending an hour and a half on stage with the Scottish writer Andrew O'Hagan. Um, he wrote Mayflies, which is a book that I absolutely love. But this big interview I did with him was before Mayflies was around about the time of a novel called Illuminations. But he also um, is one of the editors of the London Review of Books, and he writes essays that are sometimes ten or 12,000 words long. They are extraordinary pieces of writing. And he had just written one uh, about where he made a persona for himself on the dark web and he was exploring how you create the sort of a fake person and and what it means. And so we had this wide ranging conversation that was all based on literature and writing, but with one of the most interesting people I've ever spoken to. So that's definitely a career highlight. I did get to uh, do quite a long interview with Hilary Mantel for the big weekend of books. So, as partly as a reaction to COVID, we do a, a yearly on air uh, books festival on Radio National. And I got to speak to her. And I've long been a fan of Hilary Mantel's work. And it's in a way, it's harder to interview the people you really admire because you don't want to be a gushing fangirl idiot. But also you don't want to discover that they're awful, mm. you know. So that makes all of that quite stressful. So Hilary Mantel was definitely a highlight. But just thinking, too, of the people you really admire, um, I am a huge fan of the work of Jeanette Winterson. Mm. And so I was extra anxious about meeting her because I she was the subject of all sorts of, I think, quite misogynistic press at times. And so I wasn't sure what she was going to be like to interview. She was magnificent. <laughs> shes mm. I got to interview her in person, um, in studio. She is tiny, like she is just incredibly small. She speaks really fast, really precisely. She uses words in a really inventive way and Like, I was absolutely electrified by talking to her. And one of the things she did that I have never forgotten, she said when she teaches writing, that she asks her students to write a description of the doorway they've just walked through. And she said she tells them, don't look around, but write as much as you can about that doorway. And of course, it got me to think about the doorway and the airlock that I had just walked through and to try to think about what it is that a writer does that brings all of that alive so that was exciting but can I tell you who was one of the most intimidating people I've ever written uh, I've ever interviewed it's probably still a highlight but it still gives me slight palpitations to think about and that's Margaret Atwood Mm -hmm. so I've actually interviewed her twice Uh, the first time I think it was 2012 when I was living in Brisbane and it was an extraordinarily rainy night and she she's quite tough to interview um because she sort of puts you through your paces and if she doesn't like a question she'll either challenge the question or not answer it and so she really kept me on my toes um and I think there's nothing wrong with that like I didn't think she was giving me a hard time for the hell of it although she's a very playful person she's got a very naughty sense of humor um I think as an interviewer, it's okay if somebody pushes back on a question or doesn't want to answer something or questions the premise of it. Mind you, I think some of that was playing to the crowd. I don't think she actually disagreed with, I asked her about the role of literature and she went, oh, the role of literature Mm -hmm. and sort of implied that that was only a question Mm -hmm. for academics when I am 100% confident that she thinks a lot about the role of her writing, what it does in society, the politics of it, and so on. I interviewed her again just as COVID was starting to cut shut things down, and I was more relaxed. She was more relaxed because we got to spend quite a bit of time in the green room beforehand, and I actually said to her, you gave me a really hard time last time, which she thought was quite amusing. Um, and, you know, she's magnificent Mm. and slightly terrifying.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know with the live events that you cover uh, versus the stuff that's recorded, because we talked about the importance of editing and cleaning up stuff, not only because sometimes you want to cut out someone's cough or their, you know, ums and ahs and things like that, but also the fact that you can make things make a bit more sense and give people a bit more clarity and also cut out the parts where you sound totally stupid, which happens to me very often. But with the live events, I remember listening to Michael Kafcart. I think he was interviewing Colson Whitehead, perhaps, and it just went to shit. It and was Peter. Be- it was Peter Beattie. That's right, Peter Beattie, and it just went to shit. But I guess that—how do you manage those live events, and how do you make sure that they do run smoothly?
1: Look, it's a tricky one because you have to be prepared for things to be unexpected. Um, and in fact, it's a better interview. If you are just listening like mad and responding to what they're saying, Uh, you know, we've all we've all seen those interviews where somebody is so wedded to their list of questions that they are missing great opportunities. Um, So you just have to clench your toes and go with it. But for me, I think it's really important to be very well prepared. And, and to, in fact, have your list of questions and your very clear sense of the shape of the discussion and also be prepared to ignore it and to throw it out the window. Mm. And so I just like to know where I want to begin and where I want to end. I'm not, but see, I'm not a news journalist or a current affairs person, so I'm not interested in confrontational interviews. Um, having said that, there are times when you do need to say to a writer, I think what you're doing here is really problematic or can we talk about the way that you're writing about women's bodies Mm. or what does it mean that there's so much pleasure in this violence? Because if you don't, then you're complicit. Mm. And that can be quite hard to do um, because I'm not very good with confrontation. I find that difficult, but I've learned to think about how important it is for the listeners as well that you do prod away at ideas as well as, you know, enable them. So it is such a balance. And some of that just comes with experience. Um, but there is always a chance that things can just go totally pear-shaped. Mm. And that has only happened to me once or twice. And I'm not going to name the writer that this happened to because it became quite complicated afterwards. Um, but with somebody who tried to hijack a panel, and was being quite unpleasant to another member of the panel. And that's where you've got another responsibility, which is to protect the people that you are interviewing so that they're not harassed either on stage or from the audience. And so that's quite an interesting one because you've got a whole lot of sets of responsibilities at the same time. Um, I did, with this particular writer who I won't name, I did have an experience a couple of years later when I met another interviewer, um, an English guy who actually travels around the world and does a lot of interviewing. And we were talking about people we'd interviewed and things that we'd love doing. And I, in a very circumscribed and careful way, talked about this experience. And he then turned around and went, that was you. Mm -hmm. And and I realised he knew and he'd heard about this thing. And then I said, oh, yeah, but I heard that this and this happened on stage somewhere else. And he went, that was me. <laughs> so we had this hilarious moment of, um, you know, talking about what had happened and what you have to brace yourself for. <laughs> wow. But I've never had to interview somebody on stage who, you know, this guy had had to interview people who'd neck two bottles of wine before they got on stage to talk about their book. That's never happened to me. Mm. Um, I have to say that overwhelmingly writers are, generous interesting and they know when you've read their book
0: Mm.
1: now that sounds that doesn't sound like a um that sort of sounds like an obvious thing to say doesn't it but you'd be surprised how many writers are interviewed by people who haven't read their book or who where they have to do those really quick interviews where all the persons had time to do is read the press release And I have once or twice interviewed somebody who's being a bit resistant at first, and then you can actually feel the moment when they go, oh, you have read my book, and then they open up. Mm -hmm. And it actually happened to me once interviewing Jane Smiley, and I thought, the American writer, I thought, why is she being so sort of resistant? And then I realised it was because she'd been interviewed by too many people who hadn't read her work. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think they, you know, if you show it, respect for their work, then they shine.
0: Yeah, that was one of the things that Ramona told me about her work, especially presenting a daily program um, and that becoming overwhelming in terms of the amount of reading she had to do.
1: It is a bit overwhelming at times.
0: mm, Yes, I find the same thing because I think that that's one of the things that I've always tried to do is try to make sure that I've read the content I'm talking about. Um, which can become quite overwhelming at times because you are reading for speed sometimes and making frantic notes and getting through books at a rate that's probably too fast to actually enjoy some of them. But um,
1: I do my frantic notes. That is oh, the sound, listeners, wow. of many, many, many yellow post-it notes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so it does make a huge difference, I think. Once you've once you've got across someone's book and you can tell them about like really subtle things that happen in the book. And I think it does change the interview uh, in lots of different ways, but yeah, that makes it such a much better interview when you know what you're talking about.
1: Well, and if you've got time to have not just read their latest book, but Mm. to have read the five previous books, um, which again, with those big interviews, I try to do well, and I try to do it with a lesser known uh, writer as well as a big name writer sometimes mm-hmm. I simply can't read 10 books for an interview um, and sometimes I can
0: yeah cool I want to ask you some of the people you have on your bucket list to interview
1: Michael Ondaatje yeah okay. I am a huge fan of the Canadian writer Michael Ondaatje mm. I love the lushness of his writing but I think it's a lushness along with a sort of precision as well. And I have been a fan of his work for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So he is definitely on my bucket list. Um, I'll confess I don't like the phrase bucket list, so I don't know why I said that. I am I am quite a fan of his. Look, I feel very privileged because I have got to interview most of the writers I want to interview, although I've just looked up at my bookshelf Louise edrick Mm. I would love to speak to Louise Edrick, the Native American writer. Um, I can actually see that I've got about 11 of her books there that I've read. I hadn't realized I was a completist of her work, but I have read a lot of her stuff and she creates a whole world that is almost the real world, but, you know, it's full of fictional characters and as an exploration of you know, Indigenous cultures and storytelling and brutality. I mean, her work is often quite violent and it's that combination of violence and lyricism is something that I think can be so powerful in fiction. She doesn't do that many interviews and I would love to speak to her. Mm. But you know who she reminds me of as a writer? Um, When I read her work and I read the Australian, West Australian writer Kim Scott, Mm. I think of them in a similar category. Okay, I think they do similar things in the way that they write and the relationship of, um, you know, language and Indigenous language to storytelling and the way that they move across time. I actually think they sit quite well together. And I have interviewed Kim Scott, and he is absolutely wonderful to interview. He is such an interesting thinker. Um, So, yes, Louise Edrick. I will think of other people who I really want to, interview as we keep talking.
0: (laughs) I think Michael andati has got a new book coming out this year as well. So maybe you'll get your opportunity. (laughs) Oh yeah. Let's hope. (laughs) (laughs) Um, at, At Radio National,
1: I mean, we are very collegial, but there are two books programs. So we also have to talk to each other about where an interview is most appropriate. And so the sort of the big picture book interviews uh, like sort of the straight interviews with writers tend to go on the book show with mm. Claire Nichols, uh, whereas my focus is slightly different. But I would, in fact, walk over hot coals for the opportunity to speak mm. to Michael Ondaatje. So we will see. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I want to ask you about arts journalism in Australia. We've got RN, obviously, who have been doing a great job covering stuff for years. Um, you occasionally appear on ABC TV as well for different programs and things like that. We've got The Age and Sydney Morning Herald, of course. Um, we've got some great literary journals, but not a huge amount else. How do you see literary journalism in Australia at the moment?
1: Look, I see this in the context of all of the um, cultural sector being undermined and underfunded. So I am worried about the state of galleries, libraries and museums, as well as universities, as well as, you know, all the places where reviewing and interviewing and arts journalism happened. We've seen a decline in the in the um, amount of it. On the other hand, of course, there are podcasts, there are interviews, there's there's great interest in the the content. But even when I look at where I read other book reviews, uh, because I do consume lots of book reviews, I will never read a book review until I've read the book first. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are just fewer of them. I mean, I read the Sydney Morning Herald and the Australian every weekend. And there's half as many Books being reviewed as they used to be. Um, There are lots of good people who aren't doing it anymore, but of course there are some great writers. I mean, I think B J. Silcox, who is based in Canberra and is a freelance reviewer, is fabulous. Um, I think the Guardian does some very good arts journalism. Um, You know, ABC Online also does arts journalism as well, but it's a it's a hard area to be in because often to get started you are freelance and part-time and so you're doing it with something else and, you know, and, and you've got to pay the rent. So, mm. you know, you have to do bits and pieces of, of other things. There is a new cultural policy that's just been, you know, released by the federal government. So it'll be interesting to see the impact of that and if that's going to, you know, improve things in the sector. I think the cultural fund from the Copyright Council has actually been a very dynamic force in arts journalism in Australia. Uh, Things like the Stella Prize have also been very good at um, nurturing writers and diverse writers, which I think is obviously really important as well. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Look, Ben, I'm an optimist. So, you know, even with all of that going on, I still think there are good people doing good stuff and there's, you know, there's great talent and there's plenty of content for people to be working with. But Mm. on my bad days, I certainly worry about what's happening.
0: On Australian literature at the moment, I've kind of come back to it fairly recently because I think after university, I found that there was a lot of stuff that was really cliched and mass marketed and sold in BW that wasn't really my thing. But The last few years, I think I've found a huge amount of really good Australian authors. A lot of small presses have come up in the last few years as well. Who are some of the authors in Australia that you think deserve more recognition? This
1: is always a very difficult question because both, you know, half the books I've ever read flee from my head immediately Mm. and I know that I will not mention things that I, (laughs) I want to mention. But look, I think it's important to mention a writer like Michael Winkler, who Mm. wrote Grimish, um, as a sort of positive story of somebody who's writing innovative and experimental work. Uh, But also, I'm a bit wary as well, because... I'm not particularly interested in reading self-published work. Mm. There's a lot of very, very mediocre self-published work. I am all for the work of publishers and editors in particular to shape work and to change it. But Michael Winkler's work is an example of somebody doing something that is quite out there um, and very successful. Mm. Um, i I also, and just thinking particularly of work that I've read in the last year or so, uh, Fiona McFarlane's book, The Sun Walks Down, I think is really quite something. Um, and obviously, I'm particularly interested in the way that history is dealt with in literature, and which is always going to be such a fraught project in Australia because you know, history itself is such a dynamic discipline and has been for at least 50 years or so and has changed the way that we think about our relationship with Indigenous people, with the landscape, with, um, you know, groups whose stories haven't been told as much. And I think a book like The Sun Walks Down takes on a lot of those national um, cliches and myths and reworks them in really clever ways. But I guess the other thing about Australian fiction, you know, it is such, it's such a big field Mm. to talk about because there's crime fiction and there's fantasy fiction and there's all the stuff that happens in genre and genre fiction can also be a very good way of dealing with, um, you know, complex things about our identity. And one example, and I can literally remember that when it was recommended to me, when I was doing postgraduate history work, a labour historian I knew, um, a woman, said to me, have you heard of Phryne Fisher, mm. um, the series by Kerry Greenwood? Mm. She wears silk knickers, smokes cigarettes, and sleeps with whoever which she wants. You must read her. And, um, and you know, they're popular crime fiction that are much more political I think, than people realise, partly because the books are much more political than the TV series Mm. and much more radical. I mean, they deal with social issues. She's got a Chinese lover. Um, You know, she's a, a rich, fashionable woman who is also very interested in social justice. And I think that's one of those very clever examples where genre fiction can do something that is light and entertaining and very clever at the same time. Um, But, of course, that's slightly steering away from your question, which is the state of Australian fiction. Obviously, um, when we talk about Australian fiction, it's really important to recognise the indigenous writers who are doing really interesting things. And I think Melissa Lukashenko is a magnificent writer. Um, She has a new book coming out this year. But I loved Too Much Lip, partly because, again, it goes back to that combination of, brutality and poetry but with Melissa it's also with humor and i just think that way of that sort of writing that kicks you in the guts is something that i really like
0: i'll mention michael winkler briefly because he's obviously come on this show a few times and he's just a fantastic guy i saw him last night strangely yeah that book has done so well for itself and just keeps on getting these new lives and it's coming out in the States and in the UK through publishers over there and published over here by Punch and Watman. So, yeah, it's really it's it's great to see that book thriving.
1: Yes. And, of course, it was also on the short list of the Miles Franklin Literary mm. Award. And some people are wary of awards and what they do. I'm not for a couple of reasons. They're a way to celebrate writing and good writing. And even to have that discussion about what do we mean by good writing and literary merit. And I think there's nothing wrong with, um, you know, celebrating good writing and saying, yes, we actually think this is magnificent and this is doing something interesting. But also I love a long list and a short list Mm. because it's a way to discover uh, new books. And so I keep an eye on international prizes just because I know there's so much out there and that I'm going to miss interesting things. And it's important to read lesser-known writers and to discover things and to find what's happening with Nigerian fiction or interesting work from the Caribbean or a slight obsession with mine is writing from Ireland and writing from India. Mm. I think that's where some of the best books I've read have come from both of those countries. And those prizes can be a way to go, oh, hang on, I haven't heard about that. Mm. What's that book?
0: Yeah, I think that the best part about the prizes, and I don't think that I read a whole lot of prize-winning books, but often I do trawl through those long lists and pick up things that I would have never heard of. And also Mm. I think it gives public the opportunity to go see them in the windows at bookshops and go okay well i know what's on the miles franklin list and i'm gonna check that out even though it didn't win but yeah i think it really does give exposure to a lot of things that may not otherwise get the same exposure
1: yes and so for that reason i always keep an eye on the women's prize Mm -hmm. Um, i always keep an eye on the booker um and there's a the grace miss prize for experimental fiction there's a lot of stuff out there um and because I do read fantasy fiction, it's a form that I've always liked since mm. I was a kid, um, but it can be very hard to find new fantasy fiction, partly mm. because of the styles that they use with covers, um, because it can be very hard to judge if you just go into a bookshop and go, do I want this book with the um, stylized dragon on the cover or that book with the mm. stylized dragon on the cover? And so, you know, I go for recommendations from writers, from you know, passionate readers. And I will look at the shortlist for those
0: as well. Do you want to tell us about some of your gateway books? What were some of the books that drew you into the world of literature?
1: Sure. Look, I grew up in Dapto, a working class suburb um, outside Wollongong in New South Wales. With and The dog I... racing? Oh, yeah. The Dapto dogs is probably the most famous thing. Bad and jokes <laughs> from Norman Gunston is what defines Dapto. Um, but I'm also one of seven, and I'm number six. So that meant that I was partly shaped by a very ad hoc collection of books because we did have books at home, not a huge number of books already in the household. So, you know, I spent a lot of time at Dapto Library, but it also meant that I read absolutely anything that was there on the bookshelf. And I can actually see because I kept it, I can see it on my bookshelf. um, There was a very old collection of encyclopedias uh, that my father had had. And there was one volume, volume nine, that was the only one that we all as kids took out and read and actually rubbed off the the spine from it because it was full of um, classical mythology. Hmm. And so it had all of the Greek and Roman legends, which I read over and over again, which I think is what drew me into an interest in ancient history and the classical world as a kid. Uh, so that really shaped me. Um, and we did, of course, have obvious books like Ethel Turner's Seven Little Australia, Chapter One, Foul for Dinner. I read that book so many times. Mm. Um, and I remember at primary school actually going to the school librarian and saying that I wanted to read the rest of the books in the series and they didn't have them in the school library. And so this librarian actually asked all the teachers in the school. And there was one woman there who had the house at Miss rule, Mm. which was the next book in the series. And there was another one called little mother Meg. And so that's just one of those examples of, you know, a school librarian making a huge effort for a kid who was obviously a passionate reader to find things and bring them for me. And so it's in a way that's that experience rather than that book, I think was so important to me, just the way that books were, were valued. Um, I remember really strongly uh, when people used to ask me as a kid one of my favourite books. I would say I would say it was Susan Cooper's *The Dark is Rising*. And and that's a you know an English novel that's sort of fantasy. There are these walkers walking the land on Christmas Eve. But interestingly, I it had a huge impact on me. But I didn't reread that book until a couple of years ago, and then I read it. And entire lines came back to me and there's bits of poetry in it. And I remembered it all, but I hadn't reread it. Whereas there are other books, you know, sort of gateway books that I would read over and over again. Um, And that's a sort of pattern I've had in my life. There've been some books that have been everything to me and I couldn't bear to reread them in case they disappointed me. Mm. Um, And Toni Morrison's Beloved is one of those. It knocked my socks off so powerful, so brutal, so lyrical. And it took me at least 10 years after I first read it to reread it because I was worried in case it didn't have the same impact on me and it had exactly the same impact on me. Mm. And the same thing happened with Gabriel Garcia Marquez, A Hundred Years of Solitude, which I read in my 20s. And I loved it passionately and couldn't bear to reread it. And then I finally did and I just read it from beginning to end with no critical thought at all. I Mm -hmm. couldn't stop to make myself think about what it was with that writing. Whereas um, Love in the Time of Cholera, for some reason, I read that over and over again. Um, Michael Ondaatje's An English Patient and um, In the Skin of a Lion. Mm -hmm. I read and reread. Over and over and over again. So, probably my actual gateway books are more the books that I read in my 20s than the books that I read in childhood. Mm. Um, and one of the things, because like you, I often talk to people about the books that have shaped them. And I'm curious about how much that's actually shaped. Well, it's sort of ad hoc and depends on what you've got access to, but how much it's shaped by the school system. So, I wasn't taught at Deptford High School, um, we did do Shakespeare, but we didn't do any 18th and 19th century literature. So I didn't read Jane Austen and I didn't read the Brontes. Mm-hmm. So the books that shaped me were 20th century books. And then as, as it's gone on, 21st century books. And I've noticed when I talk to other people, when they'll say, oh, it's Wuthering Heights, oh, it's Jane Austen, it's because they studied them in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, I guess... Retrospectively, that grounding was modernism and later. It wasn't the earlier stuff. Mm. What did you read in high school?
0: In high school, I think I read Lord of the Flies and some books like that. What else did I read? Oh, I we read Lord of the Flies. Yeah. We didn't read a huge amount of 19th and like 18th, 19th century stuff, but um I found for me university was probably more of the that time when I really got to got reading seriously. And um, like as a teenager, I, like you, found the library and went through the kids section very quickly and then ended up getting onto people like Philip Roth, way too young and, you know, moving through writers like that and eventually getting to people like Nabokov and others. And yeah, but I think university for me was quite defining in terms of that stuff because I really got to explore uh, writers in, in interesting ways and in like huge depth as well.
1: Yes. Actually, I did just remember something else I wanted to mention that was part of that ad hoc accidental reading that happened. And this must have been when I was in very early high school. Um, I mentioned that I'm one of seven kids and I'm one of the babies. So I'm number six. My eldest sister um, was living in a share house with a guy who was really, really into literature. And we went to visit one day and he must, he, they were probably moving house or something. I can't actually remember the context, but he said to me, you can take whatever you like. Mm-hmm. And here's somebody who'd clearly spent years scouring secondhand bookshops. And, you know, I was probably 13 or 14 and a bit of a serious young insect. And so I think with some suggestions from him, I ended up with a box of Russian literature. Mm-hmm. I ended up with Gogol's short stories and, um, bits of Dostoevsky and a copy of Blake that I still have. So it was this totally odd collection of stuff that I would never have had, had not an older passionate reader said, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And Mm -hmm. they were very sort of, you know, old secondhand, odd, really odd collection. And I love that. I love that age, and I think it continued through the 20s as well, when you can be ad hoc and surprising and just follow an interest and somebody says, have you read this or you must read this, and you do. And so, you know, you're reading Russian literature along with, I remember Jeanette Winterson's The Passion and all my friends, we were all reading The Passion by Jeanette Winterson. And that almost magic, realist, lush, poetic stuff, absolutely loved it and then the next one might have been Peter Carey's Billy mm. or I remember reading Helen Garner's um, Honor and Other people's Children while heartbroken in my 20s weeping uh, in a share house in Newtown and just for some reason that was the book that I read over and over again with tears streaming down my face mm. in all the melodrama of you know being heartbroken but I love that eclectic reading mm. that's harder to do when you're older I think
0: Yeah, I think it's that discovery phase of reading is just so much fun.
1: Oh, it's just fabulous. And it's, well, undiscerning is not the right word, but I love when it crosses genres, Mm. you know, that you can read a sword and sorcery dragon book next to something that's very literary, next to something that's 20 years old, next to something that's 120 years old. Mm. I mean, Shouldn't Isn't that the way we should read?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. I should ask you what books are you currently reading or have you recently enjoyed or are you looking forward to this year?
1: Okay. Well, this is where, again, I forget everything I've ever read. <laughs> um, except, you know, you mentioned, Ben, how overwhelming it can be to just the way that books come at us when books are part of your professional life. And I need to read at least four books a week and sometimes more, and I'm surrounded by teetering piles and they've got yellow post-it notes on it saying read that one for your interview next Tuesday, you're recording the show on Wednesday, and then you've got to read that one ahead. And coming back to work at the beginning of this year, I was feeling a little overwhelmed just going, oh, my God, how am I going to do this? And then on literally on the first day back at work, I had to interview an American writer, Taiwanese background, Kaming Chang, a collection of Mm. short stories. They were very odd, um, very experimental. The first one starts, I had an aunt once who went to the dentist and asked for her tongue to be cut out. And then it just, and it's almost like a litany. I had an aunt, I had an aunt, I had an aunt, and all these totally odd questions. And I read that book, I interviewed about her about it, and I was electrified. It was, like, fantastic. The year has started. There's no point being overwhelmed when there are so many exciting things out there. Um, I also read Dick De- Dick Kapoor's Age of Vice, a whopping great book um, that is nominally a piece of crime fiction but is very much a social novel and a critique of India and its inequalities just fantastic and now for something completely different another whopper Um, I'm just holding up for you an 800 page book called A Day of Fallen Night by Samantha Shannon Um, the first 50 pages were a slight slog and then the next 750 an absolute pleasure Um, epic fantasy so you know conventional fantasy in some way except she is a queer writer who has women warriors who makes childbirth itself heroic who has all sorts of gay relationships and you know along with dark and light and drama and all that kind of stuff um so there's some that I've read recently looking up I can see that uh I can see a whole shelf full of Sebastian Barry, the Irish writer. Mm. He has a new book coming out in about a month, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, Salman Rushdie has a new book coming out, Victory City. And you can tell I actually do quite like magic realist stuff, mm. as well as things that go into the history of India. So I'm quite looking forward to that. Um but I also just read a book by Laura McPhee Brown, the Australian writer, called Little Plum, and it's almost the opposite of those lush books. It's very clean and clear and crisp, and I like that writing as well. Um, what else am I looking forward to? Alexis Wright has a new book coming oh, wow. out this year uh, quite soon, in about a month or two. Um Melissa Lukashenko has a book coming out in October, I think, called Eden Glassy, which is a piece of historical fiction that will definitely be worth reading. Um, There is a new collection of short stories from Margaret Atwood called Old Babes in the Wood, um, and she's always worth reading. There's a um, Vietnamese writer called Nguyen Phan Kwe Mai, who has a book called Dust Child. I really liked her first book, which took us through the 20th century history of Vietnam, except for what we call the Vietnam War. It didn't particularly focus on that. And so there was a huge famine and series of um, sort of long marches as people were dispossessed over different parts of um, Vietnam in the 1940s that she brought to life so powerfully. Um, And I guess that's the other thing with fiction is the way that it takes us into experiences we don't have and places we don't know. Um, And so I am also about to read River Sing Me Home by Eleanor Shearer, who is an English uh, writer of Jamaican heritage, and that's partly about the Windrush generation. And of course, I don't have it in front of me. Jared Hussain, I think his name is, a writer from Trinidad and Tobago, I'm going to read. And I know I've read one novel from Trinidad in the past, but I haven't read a lot of books from that part of the world. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, I mean, I love the way I love reading fiction. I mean, obviously, it's really important to read Australian fiction. It's something I really enjoy doing. But I love the way reading something like a um, collection of short stories by Arinza Ifakandu, who's a Nigerian writer, took me into the experience of young gay Nigerians mm. in such a vivid and poetic way. Um, and that was a book I read at the end of last year that I just loved. And that came out of... Um, asking a writer asking damon galgett who won the booker prize the year before last saying what do you recommend and he said i've just read this collection in manuscript form and i think it's wonderful Mm. and so i went okay well i'll be taking note of that thank you very much
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's become the way i find books now is through authors and through what other people are reading
1: yes um, and I do a mixture of that and speaking to publishers about what they have coming up and trying to do a combination of the books that, of course, we have to cover um, on the bookshelf. So, you know, how could we ignore a new book by some of these big-name writers, but always wanting to balance that with new writers and lesser-known writers and surprising books and and also trying to think um think about things like books in translation and think about parts of the world that we um, perhaps don't read our way into enough. And so for that reason, I've been, uh, last year, I read more New Zealand books, books from New Zealand than I had in a while, because it seems crazy not to be paying attention to what's happening there. So I read Becky Manawatu's Away, a very powerful piece of writing which also referred back to another gateway book of mine, and that would be Kerry Hume's The Bone People, um, a a book that had such a huge impact on me. When I reread it last year, there were whole sections that I remembered. I could actually hear the rhythm of it in my head as I was reading it again. I hadn't realised I must have read it and reread it in my 20s. Hmm. Um, I'm always anxious about what I've missed, what I haven't read, the books I haven't covered, the writers who we're neglecting, the people who deserve better attention, all of that. So my apologies to every writer out there whose work I have not read. I am aware of, of you know, the responsibility that you have when you're in a role like this, um, that it's a great privilege to be reading people's work, and but you just can't get to everything. You, you simply can't read as much as you'd like.
0: Yeah, the amount of stuff that I would like to read and the amount of clutter uh, of half-read books in this house. uh, My partner wants to kill me
1: sometimes (laughs) like because he just says, so what are you going to do with those books? Mm. And because I had a shoulder injury, it's not as easy for me to pick up bags of books and take them. And because of COVID, I've been working at home rather than in the office. And so, yeah, my house is about to explode. Actually, <laughs> it makes it a little bit hard
0: for other people living in the house. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Kate Evans from ABC Radio National. This week's episode is brought to you by My Chat with Joshua Cohen. Here's a sneak peek Hey, Josh, it's so exciting you're coming to Victoria in March. Is that right? Yeah, Ben, that's true. I love British Columbia. Josh, you do realise that the Wheeler Centre is in Melbourne, Victoria, which is in Australia. Oh shit, you're kidding me, that's miles away. Well, maybe I won't see you. Coming soon on Beyond the Zero. We're back, it's time for Kate's Desert Island Books.
1: I'm so glad you didn't say that I had to, you know, on on the BBC program they say that you have to have um, the Bible and the works of Shakespeare. No chance. And I'd say, can I trade in the Bible? Like I'm not going to read that. Um, Apologies to all the people who do, but I am not. Um, I'm tempted to say I'd want long books so that I could keep reading them. Look, I think it would have to be Michael Ondaatje's In the Skin of a Lion If I could only take one of his, I think it would be that rather than the English patient, although that, oh, okay, or would it be the English patient, be one of those. There would have to be at least one of Toni Morrison's, Um, probably Beloved. Now, can I cheat? Because as I look at my bookshelf, I can see that Pat Barker's Regeneration Trilogy, that I have all three books bound as one book. Mm -hmm. So I always thought of that as one book because I read it. Back to front, like that. um Gosh, what piece of Australian fiction would I take with me? I do really like Peter Carey's Illywacker, but would it stand up to rereading or would, should I take something that is much more contemporary with me? I probably should take something much more contemporary with me. And I'm looking at Fiona McFarlane's The Sun Walked Down, but that could be just because it is on top of my bookshelf. Now, forgive me, Ben, I'm going to turn around and look at my shelf. <laughs> now part of me says that I should take some Patrick White because I have not read a whole lot of Patrick White oh how could I forget I would have to take A.S. its Possession that is a book I have read so many times and it's you know I mean it's partly cod history in a way but what I like about it is that it's about a search for history as well as history and it has inventive fake footnotes and I have read that book so many times but see partly I'm talking about the books that I used to read and reread and I don't do as much rereading of them now I think um, I would have to take Hilary Mantel perhaps I would take Wolf Hall Um, if you'd let me take the whole selection of course (laughs) that would that would keep me very busy for quite a long time Mm -hmm. it would be nice to take a Louise Erdrich which one would it be? I'm trying to peer across there. I did really like La Rose, I think. Um, Although her latest one, Night Watchman, that was very, very good. Um, We have a thing on the bookshelf, which we call reviewer regret, which is where we finish the recording. And we say to the guests, you're going to regret what you didn't say. Um, Don't, beat yourself up about it. And Mm -hmm. as soon as you walk through the door, you remember the 10 things you want to say. That's the experience I'm having right now, of course. Um, In reality, I read a lot of crime fiction as well, but it'd be very hard to take a piece of crime fiction because the thing about crime fiction is often you read series. um, And if you read the same one over and over again, it could get a little bit annoying. I've recently discovered Mick Heron. So if you'd let me take all of the... um, slow horses series that would be pretty good i reckon i'm sure you wouldn't let me take an entire series um i did really like Bernadine Evaristo's girl woman other i reckon that probably deserves a reread but i'm not sure it's a desert island book i don't know what my desert island collection would be <laughs> what you know because of course what you'd really want is a guide to surviving on a desert island uh when you know when you're an arts journalist with without the practical skills required to um, build a shelter or make a fire from scratch. So you know, and I can also say that I didn't mention Robbie Arnott's *The Rain Heron*, a book that I like enormously. I think he's a terrific Australian writer. So don't hold me to any of those. If I'm if I'm put on a desert island disc, I reserve the right to um you know take a Kindle and somehow be able to recharge it.
0: Yes, solar powered Kindle. I think it's a great idea.
1: Yeah, because I put other people on the spot about this stuff all the time. I don't mm. expect to be put on the spot because, in fact, I also really love reading nonfiction. Mm. I like reading essays, um, you know, or would it be something by Colum Tobin be because, you know, he writes such great Irish fiction as well. Mm. Oh, Ben, quickly, can I say that I forgot to mention Audrey McGee's The Colony, which is one of my favourite books from last year?
0: Very good. I should probably wrap it up. Before we do, do you want to tell us where we can go and listen to your wonderful program on RN and where we can catch up with you online?
1: I certainly will. So the bookshelf is broadcast every Saturday morning at 10am, although it does have a couple of other repeat slots during the week. And so that's on ABC Radio National, but all Radio National programs are also available In podcast form, um, either online at abc.net.au/slash RN for Radio National, on the ABC Listen app, on any podcast app, although it's currently not on Spotify. So, really, if you just uh, Google the bookshelf ABC, it should come up. Um, Sometimes our podcast version is longer than the broadcast version, and also I do slip in some extra interviews. In the podcast feed as well. Um, and Radio National Summer has lots of extra material as well, um, lots of bookish material too, because my colleagues do stuff. We have a, another program called Best of the Festivals where some of those big interviews that I've done at writers' festivals appear there as well.
0: Well, Kate, thank you so much. Uh, Your program is fantastic and I think everybody should go and listen to the beautiful culture stuff on RN because it's just such a great resource we have here. But thank you so much for chatting. It's been an absolute pleasure and I hope we can chat again soon. I
1: would love that, Ben. Thank you so much. And um, my apologies for the planes that went over and coughs that I may have done in your ear, which I know you'll be able to edit out. But, you know, my apologies. What happens to your headphones?
0: (laughs) Thank you so much, Kate.
1: Okay. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks again to Kate Evans. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod and you can email us at beyondzeropod at gmail.com. You can support this podcast by heading over to Patreon.com and searching for Beyond the Zero. We'll be back with the next episode very soon.